Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin, and on this episode of the Incredible Hulk podcast, we are talking to the amazing giant of a human, Cole Williams. Uh, and if you've never met Cole, you can check out his website, Cole Speaks. This conversation was spectacular. I loved every minute of it. Um, it was great to sit down and talk for about an hour about parenting. Guys, I loved this conversation. I hope you love this conversation. I hope you go to colespeaks.com and hook up with this guy because um, he will fill your cup. I promise. So enjoy. It's Cole Williams, episode three for the month of February, celebrating Black History Month with our friends from McDonald's. This is the Incredible Hulk Podcast. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The Incredible Halt Podcast. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret. I'm always angry. Don't tell television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. The Incredible Halt. Besides, nobody's getting hurt. Podcast. Maybe if I can control it, I can use it. Hear the music. Cole, how are you? Good, how are you? I am amazing. Thank you so much for allowing me to come into your house to do this episode. Listen, no problem. I'm excited and glad that you're here. So, there's a lot of people in this part of the state that probably know who you are. But I think so. For, for people who don't know who you are, yes. um, you know, we start with, with the big moment when yes. you become a father at 16. Yes. Right? Yes. And what there's many places we could jump off from that, yeah. but, you know... I think the one place that I want to start before we kind of get down the rabbit holes of all the amazing work that you're okay. doing is one of the interviews you did, and I don't know, remember how far back it was, but okay. you said something that stuck out to me, which was you became a dad at 16 and you started showing up in parenting groups. <laughs> yes. Why? Like yes. what in your brain? I mean, which is amazing, obviously, and right. leads to right. blah, 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 blah. And we right. build on top of that. But yeah. when I heard you say that, I went... How does a 16-year-old have the awareness to be like, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing. I should go surround myself with other parents who don't know what they're doing, and we can yeah. all not know what we're doing together. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about that, it, it was in the midst of a crisis that it sort of dawned on me that I needed to do something different. Um, and so, of course, my childhood, there was definitely a lot of violence and domestic violence and just abuse. Um, and so I re remember one particular night uh, while I, after studying for my English exam, or preparing for my English exam, I remember um, my son just really being agitated and upset. And then I became agitated and upset. And I thought about shaking him. Like, I was just really like, I just wanted him to literally stop crying. Sure. Um, and I thought, you know, if I don't do something, in the moment when I, I heard myself say, I just need him to stop crying, maybe I'll just shake him and maybe he'll stop crying. Um, or maybe I'll just hold him tight because I just want him to stop crying. It was in that moment that I thought to myself, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that way. And it was in that moment after I said I shouldn't be thinking that way. And I thought maybe maybe I need to start thinking about how do I figure out not to do some of the things that happened to me growing up. Um, and then that's when I launched out looking for parenting classes. And there were none for a teenager back in 1994. Um, there were, I can't think of, yeah, I don't remember there being any parenting classes at that time. And it just so happened I was doing some work with Planned Parenthood, um, helping to uh, develop a teen um, was it a teen article for teens, and I started telling them that I needed to go to a parenting class. And so we contacted CPS or oh the Department of Health and Human Services, and they didn't have anything. But this lady by the name of Nell Dean Edwards taught a multicultural parenting class for parents that have already had their children removed from their care. 
I walked in the classroom and instantly I saw all these parents that had already had their kids removed. And I was like, that will not be me. And so I started learning all the things they talked about. One of the things I took with me was timeout. And I put my son in a timeout rocking chair. Um, and that was really for me to see that work. I was I was sold about, okay, the importance of taking parenting classes because it did teach me something different that I hadn't learned growing up with my own mother. So And, and so let's jump yeah, ahead yeah. to a week from now, okay. right? Like yeah. You're about to receive this amazing award. <laughs> yes. So, and I want to set the stage really early on. That, right. Like, I know the award is called a giant award, and right. I want you to explain what that right. is and how you get nominated and all of that stuff yeah. so people understand. Right. But... People who have never met you, like you're just this beam of energy, this giant. I mean, I've, I've yeah. known you for six minutes, know, and right? I'm already like, <laughs> you're a super warm, empathetic, welcoming yeah. human being. Yeah. And I want to travel that whole thing, but okay. very quickly, let's talk about this amazing award that okay. you're getting yeah. next week. So I'm receiving the Phyllis Scott Activist Award uh, for my work um, in really in the criminal justice system and working primarily with youth who are incarcerated and men that are incarcerated. Um, one, I didn't see it coming and I'm just in the trenches. And so I think it's an amazing, um, I guess it's just amazing to be recognized by the community, which I've been living in since 2008 and sort of just been in the, in the field doing this work around how do I, um, really change the way men are seen and looked at as it relates to when they return home, but most importantly, how, um, men and boys of color are, um, are examined by the world. And so it's just really been, um, it's actually been my personal life reflected into my, my career. How so? Um, because long story short, I went from being a dad, a single dad at, um, becoming a father at 16 and then a single dad at 17 to be turning 32 and becoming a licensed foster parent where over five years I fostered, um, six sons and was able to adopt one, um, yeah, so ultimately I adopted an additional son, and so I've had foster six, adopted one, plus my own biological son. So this whole movement of like being a dad has been been really a mirror of my own life, and I've had two sons incarcerated in prison. I've had a son in the juvenile detention center, and so now my work is in the juvenile detention center. Um, myself and my son at one point was in the prisons as a, doing a son-to-a-father program sure. where we were in the prison working with dads. Um, I just started seeing boys of color who look like me entering into these really um, dark spaces and then coming back to the community and still facing major challenges. And I think I, my goal has really always been to sort of tell the stories of boys and men of color who are entering in and out of these spaces um, and really trying to make a difference by simply giving them a space to tell their story. Um, so it's it's really been that and me just fathering. And I tell people there's nothing I've done that no one else can do. I simply made a decision that I was going to be a good guy. And I, that was one of the things I would always tell my sons, that it never costs anything to be a good person. You can do that for free. And so that sort of morphed into um, fatherhood and, and my love for um, fathers and helping fathers recognize how amazing amazingly gifted and important they are to not only the world but to the families and the people that would um, live within their communities so i'm a big component of pushing fathers to see their greatness yeah it's just yeah it's awesome so yeah, yeah. so congratulations yeah thank you thank uh, you thank you because i mean i think most people in this community would say 
of, of course you should get this award, yeah, right? You have to and, and you know, and probably the reason you're getting the award is because yeah. what you're doing right now, like, ah, oh, shucks, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, <laughs> well, because the, you know, if you beat your chest and tell everyone how awesome you are, it's much, right. much less cool to give you an award. Exactly. Right. right. But when you're so in you the gotta... trenches every day doing the work, yeah. That's usually when it gets recognized. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. right? But I, I think the the sentence that stands out to me is yeah. the I I'm not doing anything special. I just did the thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But in that sentence is why it's special because 98 percent of people, no matter what race, creator, culture they come from, won't. Yeah. yeah. Right. They yeah. won't pick it up. They won't do yeah. the. Um, you know, while I was driving to your house, I passed by DA Blodgett and, yeah. and I have a group and we do a ton of work with them, taking wow. them to the performing arts. Yeah. And, and I say the same thing. It's like, I'm not, I take them to movies. It's not special friends. Yeah. I was just the one that did it. Like anybody could have done anybody that. Anybody could have done that. Yeah. You but just, you just do, you just do it. You know? And so I want to go back to yeah. that 16, then 17, but can you identify, maybe you can't, but yeah. can you identify that moment where you went? I love being a father and it's such an amazing thing. And I want to explain to other people why it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, December 30th, 1994. Oh, apparently. Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 I know exactly when it was, um, December 30th, 1994 at nine 55 in the morning. Um, when Nathan was born and I looked down at him and he looked up at me and I, um, detached him from cutting, um, cutting the biblical cord from his mom. And that was it. I was like, okay, I don't know how to do this, but I do know if I've been given a gift that looks and feels like this, then there must be something special about me. And so I'm going to do everything that I can um, with the resources that I have to try to be the best dad that I possibly can with the knowledge of growing up, not ever having a father or not seeing a dad in my neighborhood, not seeing men of color, even in our, in my school system. So the men that I idolized were men like Michael Landon from Little House on the Prairie or uh, George Jefferson or um, James Evans um, and even Heathcliff Huxtable. Like these kind of men represented something that I wanted as a boy growing up without my father. But they were also great examples of what I could be. And that's why I think media is so powerful, because it, it creates um, a visionary or it helps a kid create a vision about what their life could be. Um, and so for me, it was just like, okay, I want to be a little bit like him. I want to be a little bit like him. So I didn't necessarily have the opportunity to sort of handpick from men around me because there weren't a lot of them. But the men that were on television who had this very their nurturing spirits, um, I was like, I want to be able to nurture my son that way. Tons of trial and error. I messed up all the time. Um, but looking back, that was that one moment when I was like, okay, I can do this. And, um, and so when when does that germinate into yeah. a, a and I hate to use the word no. business, but it is a business. It right? is a like, business. Absolutely. When, when does it germinate into a business? Yeah. Because you're doing for those for people who have not gone to the website, it's yeah. colespeaks.com. You can right. see all of the stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Some of it you are currently doing, some of right. it you have done, but yeah. all of it revolves around some versioning of fatherhood. Yes. Right. And we'll talk about the League of Extraordinary Fathers oh here in my a little God. bit. Yes. Um but but all of it revolves around this thing. So there has to be a moment where you go, all right, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent at this, but I think I got it. Yeah. And I think I got a message that I want yeah. to share. And then, yeah, then there's obviously phase two, which is where Nathan comes along. and He's going to help yeah. you share this yeah. message. Well, it, it really was, wasn't until 
I didn't realize we had a message until some of the agencies that I worked alongside in terms of getting support for my um, my sons. I started noticing they wanted us to come and share our story um, during fundraisers, and I was like, "Wow, that's so." You're in your, you're in your 30s when this. Yeah, so I'm yeah okay. I'm in my 30s when this happened, and I'm like, "Oh wow!" So we're sharing our story. I'm sharing my story, and people are like really receiving it pretty well during these fundraisers. And I thought to myself, "Hmm, how many people can I impact?" with our story that aren't there for a fundraiser. And uh, I sat down with my boys and I said, you know what, we're going to take our story. We're going to own it. And then we're going to go out into the world and we're going to share it. Um, in the hopes that we, um, really help people understand what it was like being, um, a father at one point of a single African American father in a home with boys that have come from extreme trauma, um, and abuse and neglect and all of the things that we went through, um, to sort of sustain and keep ourselves together. Probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. Um, and there were, yeah. And so that was the moment I said to myself, I'm going to take our story. We're going to figure it out. And then we're going to go out and share it with the world. Yeah. But fostering <laughs> was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Which is, which is fascinating. And yeah. I want to talk about that here yeah. Yeah. because, um, I think that's it's it, you and I meet at an interesting yeah. point in my life, which okay. is always fascinating <laughs> when when you meet somebody and they start saying this stuff because we're at this point in our life where we're wanting to do what you did oh, at 32, wow. right? Wow. But we're have that look that you just yeah. gave me yeah. about it's the hardest thing in my life is yeah. where you get where you get stuck, yeah, right? Because you go because and I want to, I want to hear so yeah. you you and your son. You're, he's now at. He's like. He's fourteen. Thir he's thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. He's thirteen. I'm working at St. John's Day Blodgett, um, and there was a coworker of mine who was already fostering, and she said to me, "Cole, you should become a foster parent." And I was like, "No way, I'm not becoming a foster parent." Everything I know about foster parents, you could. There was a show called Cold Case that used to come on, <laughs> and I was like, "That's what I know about foster parents," and I refused to to, to be that person. Um, but what was starting to happen is that in the shelter where I was working at St. John's, it was becoming a revolving door of boys of color just sort of coming back. They'd leave with a foster parent and then come back a couple months later. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I can impact that. I have a big house. I have a little bit of money and I have a whole lot of love. That's got to be enough to help a kid um, move through life where I definitely learned that, that it took more than that. Um, but that was when I decided that, you know what? OK, we're going to we're going to do this. But I always say fostering was really hard because it really wasn't about the boys as much as it was about me. Like they really helped me become a father because everything I thought I was doing, I was doing it completely wrong because they were asking me things that I was uncomfortable with. They were literally asking me to um, allow them to act out in a, in a safe space, but act out aggressively um, act out every emotion that they've ever experienced with the condition that they won't ever be removed from my home. Um, and I hadn't ever experienced having a kid yell at me, um, curse me out, completely disrespect me, embarrass me. I'd never felt that from a kid, but it was only until I, I got training around trauma that I was like, holy smokes, I had no idea that it was their behavior that really I was reacting to but the behavior was just a manifest manifestation of the things that they felt and that I should have been more of a behavior detective around recognizing how do I help move the needle around what they're thinking and what they're feeling so that the behavior wouldn't be so 
um, explosive. But I was just, I always say we were like in a hamster wheel and they would do something, I would do something. So we're literally triggering each other sure. and we're running around like crazy people. And um, it was rough because they were really challenging me because I was saying, I love you unconditionally. But in actuality, they were like, no, you don't. You love me with conditions. As long as I behave and do what you tell me to do, you're, you're going to be there for me. But let me not do what you tell me to do and watch what you do. And so there were things that I would do. I'm going to completely ignore everybody. So folks would be walking around on eggshells because my what I learned as an adult, when people make you mad, you just shut down. And so I practiced that in my parenting. That was a part of my parenting skill. Um, but I had no idea that, you know, some of the things that I had learned as mechanisms for my survival were actually the way that I parented. And so a lot of my work with parents is really sort of helping them see what my sons helped me see is that you really got to work on yourself. You got to check your ego. Um, you've got to do the, 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 the work. You've got to work on your own childhood wounds. Like my sons were triggering me. Um, because my own wounds were unaddressed. And so here I am parenting and I was parenting out of being bullied. This is what I tell people. I'm like, I, I was bullied in school, so I would not be bullied as an adult in my own home. And so me being a victim in high school or in, you know, growing up was like, okay, I won't be a victim here. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one that, that has this, this wall up and I'm going to be the one that no one's going to bully. And I'm going to be the alpha male in this house. And they were like, dude, we, one, we didn't want your role. We didn't want to be the dad. We didn't want to be the alpha male. We just wanted a position in your heart. And so these were things that I had to learn. And no foster care training prepares you to deal with your own stuff, especially when you don't know that you need to deal with your own stuff. Um, and so my child, my childhood experiences manifested in my, my parenting and so it took me a long time and if you look around the house you see tons of books a lot of my books are around parenting um because now i'm teaching it but i i had to learn that okay it can't be just a book you read you have to also be willing to be a student of this information and i've been a student ever since i went to my first parenting class and i it registered to me that it does work if you use it and so that's sort of been my Ooh, my journey around fostering and I, I, I look back on it and I'm like what an amazing experience it reshaped how I see the world yeah it really does and so how does how does teaching parenting mm. in 2019 to incarcerated youth and adult males how is that different than it was even three years ago because it, it you know I know you've been listening to the series that we've been yep. doing and, and you know I don't steer it into too much of, of what you know the tumult that's happening yep. in the country yeah, but right. it's certainly a part when you're talking about Black History Month absolutely it's certainly a part of what we're talking about absolutely right and absolutely. it's certainly a thing that I sure you deal with absolutely uh, and so I, I'm interested in your approach because I, I feel like in the last 36 months your approach might have been different than it was in 2014, 15. Yeah, um, I would definitely, because I, so I, I teach parenting classes for a, a number of different different demographics. Sure. So I teach a parenting, eight-week parenting class for parents that have children on probation. Um, and they're recommended through the uh, family court here. And so I get an opportunity where I mainly see moms who are really, really struggling with um, teenagers who are just having a difficult time navigating life. 
Um, and so my approach with, to them is so much around the same things I do with incarcerated fathers. It's helping them really understand how important it is for them to one, be take, to take care of themselves. And secondly, to remember what it's like to be a teen or a teenager. But thirdly, to remember that all of this is really about relationship. Like when the relationship is disrupted, that's when you see the biggest issues and getting a mom to sort of recognize that there are things about her daughter that just drive her crazy and her and her daughter just aren't seeing eye to eye. I'm like, that's an indication that your relationship needs to be stronger. There are some things you need to, you guys need to do. You might need to spend a little bit more time one-on-one. You might need to learn how to hug through that. Um, So instead of yelling at her and cursing her out, there might be an opportunity for you to find a commonality with um, your son and your daughter. A lot of times I realize parents are so stretched. They're so busy working. They're so busy um, in their own minds around how to navigate work and bills and all of those things that sometimes I think they forget. And one of the things that helped me really, to be honest with you, is I tell parents, you have to grow with your kids. I didn't grow with my sons. I sort of, as they got older, I stayed the same. Um, I still operated the same. My son said it best one day. He was like, dad still treats me like I'm a boy and I'm 20 something years old. And I'm like, is that what I'm doing? And it wasn't only, it was until he brought that to my attention that I thought, well, gosh, maybe I need to grow with him. So I try to tell parents, you know, it's really important to grow with your kids because they're not, they're not uh, ours to control. And that was a learning lesson for me. I thought parenting was about controlling kids. You get them to do what you want them to do. (laughs) They just do what you want them, um, whatever you need, that's their job. Um, But that was how I was raised. You know, if the remote is sitting next to me and I don't feel like reaching over to grab it, come downstairs and get this remote. Crazy, right? But really helping parents understand that children are not to be controlled. They are human beings who need guidance in a very in a, in a very interesting world and time where we live in where everything is happening to them and information is coming into them um, rapidly and they're changing so much and we're all separated. Um, and so I'm, I'm learning. I'm like, all this is about a relationship. If you want to have a relationship with your kid, you're going to have to seek some truth about yourself and you're going to have to be willing to be a student to your kids. I have so many parents that don't know how to just be a student i'm gonna go and spend time with them but it'll be the kind of time that i want to spend and i'm saying no you literally have to go to where he's at be in his world and let him teach you um and not be the adult but simply be a student of your child and allow them to teach you about who they are that can be really really hard for someone who isn't growing with their kids well i think i mean what what i mean the last 10 minutes that you've been talking you haven't said anything that isn't a universal concept right I know. <laughs> right? Like I'm, I'm listening to you right. going, yeah, 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 you do. I was just listening to a podcast yeah. the other day that was talking about um, the guy doing the podcast and his daughter got in an accident and mm-hmm. it was her first accident and he was walking through the steps of like how he, yeah. and his words were, he narrated the accident to her and let her make sense of what happened, right? But he told her what's supposed to, like like a good yes. movie, right? What's Absolutely. supposed to happen supposed and to happen. You, you observe the world as an eight-year-old Yes. And tell me what how that makes you feel. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm right. not going to tell you how to feel. Right. But I'm going to tell you when an accident happens, here's the steps by which we act. That's what they're asking for. Give me the steps and allow me to make mistakes and do not be judgmental about it. Um, 
And that's really that's really difficult sometimes for parents to not be judgmental um, when our kiddos don't do what we've either imagined their lives to be or what we've hoped things would be for them. So I always tell parents, man, it's it's okay to grow and separate in a way that requires some level of individuality. But at the same time, man, we've got to allow our kids to to, you know, fall, fall and make mistakes. But I've got I've done it, too. We go in and we rescue and we rescue and we rescue. And, and they learn nothing. And they learn nothing. And then we're upset when our children become entitled. And, and I'm like, well, you, mom, you've literally done everything for him. Of course he would throw an adult tantrum because you've been doing this for him since he was. So recognizing that sometimes as parents we have to really do a better job at our own stuff. It always falls back on us um, and how we're, how we're healing and how we're dealing with and managing our own world. And I think sometimes our kids kind of get trapped in that without even without us even realizing that that's what we're doing. Um, and I know that it's unintentional. We love our kids. We want the best for our children. Um, but that's really helped. I use that in my work with men. And I go into spaces with men where it's um, I mean, I'm in a prison. I'm in a jail. So to even talk about fatherhood when I'm and in relation to children, if you want to see men get emotional, talk about their children. Um, and I think sometimes we think that a man that's incarcerated or he doesn't have any feelings, he doesn't care. I beg to differ. I have seen uh, men in spaces that are supposed to be hyper-masculine break down when you say these are the benefits of you being present and these are the, um, these are what hap- this is what happens when your children don't have access to you. And them sort of seeing the light bulb and then having them share their narratives of growing up without their fathers and the impact that that's had on them. I want to say 90% of men that are incarcerated grew up without a dad. 90? Yes. Yes. There are, yeah, 90% of men incarcerated have grown up without a father. The reason why I started going to the prison, because I asked a question in my class in the juvenile detention center, and out of 40 boys, almost, I want to say maybe 23 of them said I had a father incarcerated. 17 of them said um, their fathers had returned and they hadn't even had access to them. So I'm like, well, what's happening? Why are um, men disappearing? And when we're looking at it, it's all of those systemic issues um, that are taking place. But the criminal justice system has done a horrible job um, in terms of with destroying um, families of color. And so that's what I see. So now the question I'm asking is how many of you have a brother that's incarcerated? And 90% of their hands raised that now, okay, that might not be there, but my big brother is going to. So now I see little brothers, I see big brothers going to detention. I see little brothers coming after them and I see big brothers leaving detention, going to jail. And then in one particular instance, I went to a prison here in Michigan. And as these men were, I was going to class, walking down um, the, the walkway to class, they were going to chow. I bumped into a young man who knew me in detention and then that solidified for me the stats. So I was like, oh, I'm actually seeing everything that the stats say. This young man I saw in detention, now he's walking a child with adult men, um, and he's now serving 10 years in prison, and he's 18. So it's, it's really changing me um, because now I'm moving from that to saying, okay, so what happens when they come back home? And a lot of my work now is working with men who return home 
and working with boys who are returning home from detention. And so the next thing project I want to do is sort of bring a man um, to the table who's returned home from prison and then bring a boy who's returned home from detention and have them talk about what's it like to return back to the community. But most importantly, what can that man who's returned home from prison give to this young man um, as a, I don't know, as a passing down to stop the cycle. So I'm starting to, I'm starting just to see a lot of that. And that's, what's really pushing me to want to tell their stories because their stories are amazing. So how do you, they're amazing. How do you find, how do you find hope in that? Right. And because I think a lot of people mistake hope and optimism, right? Absolutely. Optimism is you find every, there's good in everything, which is a silly way to live your life. Right. Hope is you are driving towards evoking a change to bring light, happiness, whatever. Right. Um, So how do you find hope in that? Right. Because I'm hearing you talking going, man, like. If it's 90 on top of 90, I mean, I'm not great yeah. at math, yeah. but if it's 90 on top of 90 on top of 90 on top of 90, yeah. like, it's a really tall mountain. The, I think the hope is in hearing the stories and recognizing the human condition and recognizing um, that people just want to be connected um, and people want to be heard. And I think that's why social media is such a huge thing, because when people aren't heard, they find ways to get heard. And I think for me... Help, helping people sort of tell their story has been helpful because it's it's helped me. Um, but I think I, I've i always been just, I've always had the ability to sort of take things that seem dark and dim and find some glimmer of, of light and hope in it. I think that's just really just been, I mean, that's what I've done for my own survival. It's like, okay, I can stay in this for what? 2.5 seconds but now I've got to do some other stuff and I think part of that came from having a having my son there was just no room to just be in self-pity I literally had to get up and make choices because I wasn't the only one going to be impacted by my choice he was too and growing up the way that I grew up I saw adults make choices that impacted me that I didn't have a choice negatively so I said to myself I won't do that to him and so you're collecting these stories where can the outside world get access to these stories? So is this part of the League of Extraordinary Fathers? Yes. So yeah, okay. it's part of the League of Extraordinary Fathers. Um, and it's also part of the new project that we're working on called um, the Delta Project. Um, and that's a project um, that works with um, a film crew by the name of Gorilla, who goes inside with me and teaches um, these young men how to use uh, the film equipment. And then we bring them in front of um, a man that they've never met who we consider to be some form of success in the community. And they sit in front of each other in front of a two-way camera, sort of like the way that we're looking at each other. They can see through the camera. And they just have an open conversation. Um, And the concept behind that came from a young man in detention saying, how do I become something I don't see? And so I said to myself, well, then we'll just put somebody in front of him so he can see what that's who he could be in the hopes that a relationship can be started again for me all of this is about relationship um and so i think part of that is beginning to collect those stories um and then the league of extraordinary fathers um which we're now calling the fatherhood um will be my graphic novel to sort of tell the narratives of boys and men of color uh, specifically from a superhero standpoint um and to talk about what it's like to be um, a dad and 
the really cool thing that we're doing now is inside the juvenile detention center right now um, we have a writing contest to find two writers in the in the space to write You're doing about. this month right we're yeah. doing this month yeah. yeah and the the guys are writing about um, telling their story and so I'm really really excited um, tomorrow to go into the det- detention center and sort of hear what these stories are of these young men and so what we've envisioned with that is finding two guys to be our intern to help us write the graphic novel um, but then also take the stories that we gathered and maybe even co- do a collection of uh, stories within that space so that boys enter into that space can begin to hear the narratives of other boys and maybe even find find something in those stories that kind of reflect who they are too so I'm really excited about that but that's that's been my that's been my experiences. I didn't really think I was a storyteller, but I'm finding that's that's what I am. Yeah. And so you spoke earlier about the importance of media in your life. Yes. And we've had a, a very interesting 12 months of yeah. media yeah. when it comes to black culture. Yes, right? absolutely. And, and you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on things like Black Panther, things like Into the Spider-Verse, things yes. like Green Book, right? Yes. Where we're seeing... Three very different ways to tell a story. Yes. Um, and specific, you know, and I was having a, a conversation with Julian Newman, who was the yes. first episode of this month, and, and we were talking, not in a podcast, but over coffee, okay. that there's a scene in Into the Spider-Verse that I thought made the movie because it was not an experience I had. Hmm. You know, as a, as a white kid growing up in Chicago, my uncle wasn't cool. Okay. Right. The, like you don't go to your uncle to get yeah. advice like that. And okay. so that scene to me spoke to, at least for me, like a lens on a, a part of the culture that I had no connective tissue to, okay. which made that movie more powerful for me. And okay. I don't know if that's me overstating it, okay. but I felt like there's some moments in the Spider-Verse, if you look at it not as a superhero movie, but as a story about culture, that it tells a very different way to to tell an animated film yeah yeah and I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on that yeah i think and if you think i'm an idiot that's fine no too. no you know what i think what has gone missing for so many people across the country is that there's always been this one way of telling the story of brown people <laughs> right and i think there is this huge disconnect that people forget that even within the culture there's diversity um and i think it just goes missing the fact that you don't see it and i I, mean, I think me and my sons always talk we talk about this a lot too is that sometimes if you don't see it you don't even think it exists sure and then when you do see it you're you're shocked by it but it's been it's been there the whole time and so i think that what we have to do and part of why um i think this graphic novel is so big for me is that i'm so tired of not seeing my story um i'm so tired of people being shocked when i tell the story but I'm like, yo, this story has been around for a long time. I just, I think it's, it just goes, it's invisible. It's almost like it's there, but people don't recognize it. So I think that's been my my biggest challenge. I'm like, these stories have always been there. It just saddens me that it's taken so long for the the world to sort of catch up to that. If that makes yeah, sense. And, and that's kind of why I wanted to ask you because, yeah. you know, when I mentioned those three movies, those are yeah. the three movies that everybody mentions, Absolutely. right? And it's, it's got a little bit of yeah. mass media whitewashing yeah. to it, right? Yeah. Like those yeah. are the three we're going to point to to say that we're now doing the culture thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a buzzword too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and, and I just, I wonder when you go back and you think about your childhood and yeah. the father figures that you were watching on TV, yeah. like, 
we don't even have that now. No. Right? Like, there aren't even sitcoms that look no. like that. No. And so it's interesting that, again, 2018 into 2019, we feel like we're different. Yeah. Media-wise. Yeah. Yeah. But we're, we're not. We no. have more choice than ever, and we're telling the same story a thousand times over. Absolutely. Well, I think the stories that we tell a thousand times over are the stories that um, are comfortable for people. And I, but wouldn't you think? Yeah. Wouldn't you think with the access to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and what Facebook's going to roll out and what Apple's going to roll out next yeah. week, right? Like, yeah. when you have all those choices, it would seem to me, yeah. as a person who's grown up in the media industry for yeah. three decades, like you have some space to experiment. And and I'm not seeing it happen, yeah. so clearly there's a reason. Yeah. But I think I th- to only point at three movies, right? Yeah. James Baldwin's movie, clearly, yes. uh, Beale Street, right? But that's likely getting talked of because of the Oscar buzz. Absolutely. But it didn't get the same yeah. push that the other three got. Or even Moonlight. Or Moonlight, yeah. right? Yeah. Which got pushed afterwards, but Absolutely. Not, yeah. not before. Yeah. Um, I think telling stories um, that don't fit the, the mainstream, um, people, tend, people are really uncomfortable with truth. Um, and I think people are uncomfortable with truth. I think that people that are operating in those spaces that have the ability to make decisions around what is being seen um, and what is being created um, is the reason why we keep seeing the same stuff. And I'm really glad to start to see that we um, that men and women of color um, are now saying, no, we're going to tell our stories. Um, And whether you want to watch it or not, we're still going to tell those stories. Um, because there are little boys and little girls whose stories go missing because people don't recognize that it's really happening. And so part of me wanting to tell these stories for um, about these dads because I'm like, yo, there are some really amazing fathers in the world that no one gets to talk about. No one knows the dads that I come in contact with um, that stories don't get told. They just They don't know it. And so I'm like, I'm going to do everything I can to tell it because boys are saying, I need my father. Girls are saying, I need my dad. Um, but dads don't know how important that they are to be at the table. They are, they, I mean, there's nothing on television that really shows a father in those spaces that say, Hey man, you can do this. Um, so I think we've got to change the narrative. And I think the work that I've been doing and the, the kind of partnerships I've had with many men and women, um, who are doing the work just isn't going isn't being seen, but we're we're moving towards that, and so I think that's the that's the cool part about all of this is that I'm really starting to see um, the stories being told, and yeah, you just can't avoid it, um, and and we need them. I mean, the the photos I'm like the photos that are on my mantle here is is a reflection of my life. It's um, I mean, the hardest thing I ever I, I've ever done is figured out how to be a dad, and I've failed at it constantly. Um, but I was like, that's really the cool part about being a parent is that you're gonna constantly fail when you're trying to establish, rebuild um, a relationship that constantly is growing and changing because your child is. Um, and it's just been really an amazing experience, and I want dads to see and feel what I what I felt. Um, I've wanted to run away. There were times I tried to run away from my sons, and these dudes literally took off running after me. <laughs> I couldn't get away. Um, but I mean, there's there's joy 
and seeing your kids um, grow. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm honored that um, my sons have allowed me to be the voice that still echoes in a world that they could listen to anything. I'm still somewhere there echoing. And so I'm really glad. And I want dads to be able to be that because children need them more so than ever before. Um, kids are hungry and are hurt. Anytime I'm in the detention and I talk about a dad, it shifts the whole room. Um, you, you see pain like no other um, when we even mention dad. And I'm thinking when you hear the word dad, you should never think of pain. But so many kids I work with, when you say dad, it turns into pain. And I'm like, and then when I go to prison and I work with dads or jail and I say, dad, I see pain. So I'm like, it's a vicious cycle. And I think that we've got to change that. Um, and my hope is using the, the vehicle that I have to shine a light on the, um, the characteristics of good fathers and in the hopes of letting dads know you can do this. But also telling moms too. Like I think moms sometimes forget that dads also have this superpower too. Um, and that we've got to leave the door open and the window crack for a dad who doesn't have a blueprint on how to do it. Um, we've got boys growing up as men who don't have men to model after. So how do they become really good dads if they don't have a model? You know, I don't know how to do this. And so they make tons of mistakes and ultimately their family's affected. So I want to create a space for that. Um, and that's why I do the work I do. Yeah. Cole, thank you so much for oh, this. Oh, man. If people want to connect with you, you've got a lot of irons in the fire. Right? I do, which the is The Delta cool. Project, the graphic <laughs> novel, like all that. Well, and, and yeah. I want to make sure people yeah. get a hold of this stuff. Yeah. Is Cole Speaks the best place? To Cole Speaks is the okay. is the best place. Um, um, my yeah, All of my contact information is there, and if they shoot me an email um, through Cole Speaks, um, that's usually the best way to reach me. So, yeah. Awesome. www.colespeaks.com. Thank you, sir. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you.